0: GOSH Pods, paediatric educational podcast series from Great Ormond Street Hospital. GOSH Pods are brought to you by the GOSH Learning Academy. Welcome back to our Great Ormond Street educational podcast series. My name is Sarah Warriach and today we're joined by Mr. Simon Blackburn, who's one of our consultant surgeons at Great Ormond Street Hospital for the first of our surgical podcast series. Welcome, Simon. Hi, nice to be here. So, Simon, can you tell us what you specialise
1: in? So, I'm a consultant neonatal and paediatric surgeon here at Great Ormond Street Hospital. So I treat a variety of conditions of in babies and children and I have a particular interest in cataractal surgery.
0: Great. So what are we going to talk about
1: today? So we thought we'd talk about some common presentations of uh, paediatric surgical conditions that crop up a lot in in early childhood and that paediatricians might see frequently. So I suppose those would be umbilical hernias, um, inguinal hernias, hydroceles, undercenter testes and problems with the foreskin. So I think umbilical hernias cause a fair amount of concern for parents. As, as you know, when children are born, the, the umbilical cord is attached to the anterior abdominal wall and, and normally it falls off and there's a hole in the anterior abdominal wall which transmits the, um, the umbilical vessels, the two umbilical arteries and the umbilical vein. And and that hole normally closes at the point where the umbilical cord falls off, but often doesn't. And so some children are left with a, a small defect at that site, um, which causes a hernia. And one of the things that, that is important about umbilical hernias, um, in contrast to, to m- many other forms of hernias, particularly inguinal hernias, where there's an increased tendency for the, the bowel to get stuck in them, incarceration of of an umbilical hernia, although it does happen, is very unusual and so there's no urgency to repair these. And so we see a lot of children who are referred within the first year of life where our normal advice to the parents would be that this should be managed conservatively. And most paediatric surgeons wouldn't repair an umbilical hernia surgically until it's got to the point where it's clear that it won't spontaneously settle. Um, And for me that's usually, as the child is approaching their third or fourth year of life, when they're uh, in a position where the parents are starting to consider putting in their primary school applications, I might then offer an operation to those children in whom the hernia hasn't settled down, Um, but by that age the vast majority of children will um, will have umbilical hernias that have spontaneously resolved because that that defect in the abdominal wall has has closed down, Um, and for that reason they don't need surgical referral at that age.
0: So if you're a paediatrician looking after a patient who's got an umbilical hernia at a district general hospital, what might you suggest we say to the parents who'd want to know how to manage the child?
1: Um, So what I would suggest is that the parents seek an opinion from their GP and a further referral Um, when the child's three, three and a half years of age. I, I usually say to parents at the point where they're filling in their primary school application form if it's still there they should they should seek a referral, which is, is a bit facetious, but it's a good way of kind of trying to peg it to everybody's head in terms of the, the child's development. Um the key thing is to explain to the parents that if, if the lump becomes hard or firm or the child's in pain, they should seek medical advice because although incarceration of an inguinal hernia, sorry, of an umbilical hernia is is very unusual. It does occasionally happen and, and it's important to safety net that. Um, And the other thing is to reassure the parents that the operation that would be required is a very straightforward one. So nearly always these are done as day-case procedures under a short general anaesthetic. Um, And what we do is simply dissect the umbilical hernia and then close it with some stitches. Um, And most children get over that surgery um, really very quickly. There's a very low risk of complications and so it's a fairly straightforward surgical procedure. So I think even if surgery is required, it's important to reassure the parents that this isn't um, the kind of procedure where it's a significant event in the child's life, accepting the fact that any operation for any child is always a major life event for the parents and that the chance of a problem is very small. Um, So I think just keeping that in proportion. Um, So those would be the things I I think would be important to say.
0: And what complications should we be aware of post-operatively?
1: I, th- I think the m- the most common thing you see after umbilical hernia repair is it bleeding under the umbilical skin, and that can very occasionally form a hematoma. So you get a big bruise, and that hematoma can then liquefy and get infected and form an abscess. I've seen that happen once or twice. Um, recurrence after umbilical hernia repair is really really unusual, um, and really only tends to happen in. Very unusual cases where the the, the umbilical hernia is very large and difficult to repair, or the child has an underlying connective tissue problem, which means that they're more at risk of a recurrence. It's not not a common thing at all.
0: So this brings me on to inguinal hernias. So how do they differ from umbilical hernias, and how how might we approach them from a clinical point of view?
1: Okay, so inguinal hernias clearly occur in the groin rather than the umbilicus. Um, The etiology is a bit different in children what happens is that there's a failure of um, closure of a structure called the processus vaginalis which is a peritoneal diverticulum um, which is an outpouching of the peritoneum that, that always exists normally during development both in boys and girls but, and it usually closes towards the end of pregnancy but sometimes doesn't and in some children in whom the processus vaginalis doesn't close it leaves them with an opening through which abdominal contents can herniate into the groin Um, In boys, that's commonly bound. In girls, occasionally, that's ovary. Um, And so it's a different problem from what you see in in an adult where an inguinal hernia can arise as a consequence of muscle weakness. Um, You you more commonly will see um, inguinal hernias in children arise as a consequence of of this congenital problem. Um, And for that reason, the the surgical treatment doesn't involve reinforcement of the groin muscles in the way that it would do in, in an adult patient. Inguinal hernias differ from umbilical hernias in in that the risk of incarceration is significantly higher. And so even in babies we would recommend reasonably prompt repair. Um, And it's paradoxically the case that in younger children the risk of incarceration is quite a bit higher than in older children. So a neonate with an inguinal hernia we would normally try and get into the hospital and repair. Either before discharge if they're premature or within two weeks if they're an outpatient that kind of Mm timescale, whereas an older child, a three or four or five year old, we would probably just list electively for their hernia to be repaired when convenient, because there are lots of children who have an asymptomatic patency of the processus vaginalis. so it's not the case that every time that structure is left open, Mm -hmm. um, a child will develop a symptomatic hernia, um, and so we do see hernias arise in later childhood and and into early adulthood as a consequence of this problem. they're most commonly seen in younger children, um, but we do see them in older children as well.
0: Can can they recur?
1: Yes, um, it's very unusual after a open inguinal hernia repair to get a recurrence of a hernia, but it, it does happen.
0: Okay, and is there anything else we need to be aware of as paediatricians for post-operative management?
1: So I think I think there's a in terms of how one manages hernias that there's clearly two situations that a paediatrician might see a hernia in. One is in a baby or a child where the hernia is clearly reducible and soft and not causing distress. Um, and under those circumstances, the, the child should be referred to a paediatric surgeon. If, if the child's a neonate, then we would, it's always good to hear about those children before they're discharged from the neonatal unit um, because often what we'll do is arrange to admit them and repair their hernia before they finally go home from hospital. The other situation in which paediatricians might see children with inguinal hernias is in the situation where the hernia is incarcerated mm-hmm. um, and that what you find under those circumstances is a, is a hard painful lump in the groin and there's a really important clinically clinical distinction to be made in that situation between a child who's got a, a lump which is the consequence of an incarcerated inguinal hernia and a torsion of an underscended testis. So one key clinical piece of information is to be clear that the, the lump is distinct from the testicle because if you can't feel the testicle distinct from the lump, then it may well be that what you're actually dealing with is, is a torted testis in the groin, and, and that requires really very urgent treatment to save the testis. Um, usually, we can manage an incarcerated inguinal hernia by reducing it, um, often with a bit of help from some um, opiate analgesia. Um, and an incarcerated hernia needs to be sent to a paediatric surgeon to to be um, reduced and then repaired. Um, If if people feel confident about trying to reduce hernias, then getting them reduced at the local hospital before transfer is really helpful. Um, But if they don't, they should be sent off to a paediatric surgeon to be reduced. And actually, what what we often find is that a bit of analgesia and relaxation during transfer Reduces the hernia in the back of the ambulance before the child gets to us. But occasionally we're in a situation where, even we can't, with a, a fair bit of experience, can't reduce hernias. And the only way we can do that is to take the child to theatre.
0: Okay. And post-operatively, um, is it the same sort of management and awareness of complications as for umbilical hernias?
1: Yeah, there's a bit. There's a bit of a spectrum there, I guess. So there are children. In, the the one end is is older children who've had. A straightforward elective inguinal hernia repair, where the risk profile of the operation is is really very good and the risk of a problem is very small, and and in fact in my own practice with well children in that situation, I often don't even follow them up in outpatients because the risk of a problem is so low that one would have to see an awful lot of children in clinic to pick up the ones with a problem. Um, the other end of the spectrum is the kind of situation in which a hernia has been incarcerated and the bowel has been damaged where um, whether well, a child may well have had a bowel resection as a consequence of that and in those children the risk of problems is rather higher.
0: So before we conclude hernias, is there anything else that you think we should know about either umbilical or inguinal hernias?
1: No, and I suppose the other thing we haven't really touched on is, is the other abdominal wall hernias which mm-hmm. occur, so hernias which are ab- above the umbilical ring yet indent them, we call those supraumblycal hernias, uh, and epigastric hernias, which are small defects in the linear alba, that supraumblycal hernias, most paediatric surgeons I think would repair, and there's no real benefit in waiting to repair them because they very rarely resolve spontaneously, unlike umbilical hernias, which do, um, and so we would often um, recommend a repair after the first year of life if that's what the parents would want, although I wouldn't necessarily insist on it. Epigastric hernias are a bit more controversial. They, they can be repaired surgically. Um, they, don't, they contain a bit of preperitoneal fat normally rather than abdominal content and they very rarely cause symptoms. So it's really just an, an exchange of a small lump for a scar. Um, and the I think a lot of paediatric surgeons would would counsel parents away from active management, although somewhat off a repair and that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, so I think it's legitimate to manage them either conservatively or operatively, but clearly the parents need to be made aware that there's a there's a choice to be made there.
0: So the next category are foreskin problems. So what would be your approach to foreskin problems in neonates?
1: So I, I think in looking at foreskin problems in children more generally, it's really important to understand normal physiology. Um, and I think that the normal um, physiology of the foreskin is Kind of quite poorly understood. Um, there's a really great paper from a few years ago by um, Malone and Steinbrecker and the BMJ about this. That the it is the case that the majority of babies are born with a foreskin that's non-retractile. And if you separate off those with abnormal foreskins and hypospadias who are in a slightly different category, one would expect most normal baby boys to have a non-retractile foreskin. And the process of separation of the foreskin from the head of the penis is a very variable event. And so it is absolutely normal to find a 7 or 8-year-old with a non-retractile foreskin. Um, About something like 7 or 8% of boys at that age will still have a non-retractile foreskin. And if you allow nature to take its course, then that number drops to about 1% by the age of 14. So a non-retractile foreskin in a 6-year-old can be normal physiology and isn't in and of itself a reason to do anything. The other thing that is the case is that the normal separation of the foreskin from the glands carries with it a a set of normal symptoms, which are normal physiological events rather than symptoms, I guess, which are um, common but cause concern. So one of those is ballooning, so urine getting trapped under the uh, foreskin and causing it to stretch away from the glands and and balloon Um, and that is part of the normal separation of the the foreskin from the glands and can cause some um, post void dribbling which can usually be avoided by the child just gently pulling the foreskin back just to expose the very tip of the urethra. Um, A bit of redness and irritation just at the tip of the foreskin is pretty common that's a different thing from genuine balanopostitis, which we might come back to in a minute. Um, and some boys get um, kind of condensations of the smegma of the stuff that sits below the foreskin, which can form white balls that sit underneath the foreskin, which are again normal but can cause real concern. Um, they're sometimes referred to as smegmal cysts or prepucial pearls. So, all of those things I have, I have described to you are normal physiology. So if if you sit in a general paediatric surgical clinic, you see a lot of referrals of patients with those problems, all of which are normal and do not require circumcision. If you you set aside the issue of circumcision for religious or cultural grounds, which is a long discussion, um, the the commonest medical indication for a circumcision is a condition called balanitis erotica obliterans, which is a skin condition a bit like lichen planus where the, the, the foreskin gets white and scarred and that scarring can spread onto the glands and occasionally even start to go up the urethra um, and BXO is treated by circumcision and unfortunately occasionally needs to be treated by um, managing the, the subsequent meatal stenosis either with dilatation or meototomy and in, in, in very very rare Cases can extend up the urethra and need more extensive urethral reconstruction. Um, so balanitis xerotica obliterans is a is a definite medical indication for circumcision. Um, there are then lots of relative ones. So there are boys who get recurrent, significant episode of infection, um, which require frequent treatment with antibiotics, um, and. For me to, to start considering circumcision, they would have to be genuine episodes of balanopostitis rather than just a bit of redness, which is in the physiology bracket I was describing to you before. Um, and genuine balanopostitis tends to present as real redness and um, swelling of the, the the foreskin and the rest of the shaft of the penis. Mm-hmm. Um, I often parents will often say, you know, kind of lights up just like a red traffic light. And that can usually be managed conservatively um, with antibiotics. But if, if a child's getting frequent episodes of balanopostitis and everyone's thoroughly miserable as a consequence and you have a boy who's requiring frequent courses of antibiotics and that's a reason to do a circumcision. Um, there are some children with underlying neurological problems where the risk of a urine tract infection is significant where there is some evidence that performing a circumcision to prevent urine tract infection is in their best interests. And here at Great Ormond Street, for example, that logic is applied to boys with posterior urethral valves who are all routinely circumcised. It is, strictly speaking, the case that you can reduce the risk of urine tract infection by doing a circumcision, but in a normal boy, the number needed to treat is over 200. So actually you'll have to prevent one urinary retract infection in a boy with normal kidneys and no previous history of urine, urine infections. You have to do an awful lot of circumcisions to get that benefit. And then the other things that we come across, I guess, are you know the very rare occasions of significant trauma to the foreskin zips, occasionally you get involved and cause real problems. Um, and um, the, the other group who we sometimes have difficulty with are children who have um, paraphimosis. Where which is a situation where the foreskin is retracted and not reduced and then gets swollen and stuck behind the glands um, and occasionally that needs to be treated surgically sometimes with a, something called a dorsal slit where you just open the foreskin to let it reduce um, and once you've had a dorsal slit for a paraphimosis, most boys and men would prefer to be circumcised than have a foreskin that looks a bit unusual um, so those are the kinds of main contexts in which I would consider circumcision to be medically indicated. If, if you look at a lot of the refer- referrals we all see in pediatric surgery for foreskin problems, the vast majority of them fall into that bracket of kind of physiological behaviour of the foreskin that I was talking to you about at the beginning of this little chat. So, I think that's one thing to appreciate that that actually non retractability of the foreskin during the first decade of life is probably on a spectrum of normality that those things that, that are associated with um, the separation of the foreskin from the glands are kind of normal physiology. And there are a small number of absolute reasons to do a circumcision, of which Balanitis or of is kind of the top one.
0: And so I appreciate it depends on what the actual cause is for the surgery, but what discharge advice would you give these parents and patients as they leave post-operatively?
1: I think the main thing is that the, a, a circumcision has a risk of bleeding, and and has a you know low single figure percentages chance of a return to theatre for bleeding, I normally quite one or two percent, something like that. Um, usually the bleeding is evident in hospital before the boy is discharged, but that's not always the case. Um, and you can bleed quite significantly from a, for a, from a circumcision. So I would I would always say to the parents that some blood staining on the underpants or the nappies is is a normal thing but that if there is continuous dripping of blood, they need to take their son straight back to hospital um, to an accident and emergency department where they can be looked after. Um, those of us who worked in accident and emergency departments a fair bit in paediatric surgery will, will all be able to tell you stories of children who've been circumcised in the community who've come to a and um, And it's absolutely the case that an absorbent nappy can hold a lot of blood I've seen one boy bleed down to a hemoglobin of five following a circumcision before. Wow. Um so bleeding is, is a is the main significant issue. Um it's quite common to get a bit of crustiness around the stitch line, and if you don't tell parents that, then they often think it's infected and will go to the GP and, and ask for some antibiotics. Um very occasionally you can get a meat stenosis purely as a consequence of a circumcision. I've treated several of those. Um and that's thought to be something to do with failure and interruption of the blood supply to the through the frenulum by con- as a consequence of the operation rather than because of the re- reason the operation was done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would always discuss that briefly with parents before I perform the operation. A- and I guess the other thing which um, is possible but is, is unusual is that you, you, you may just end up with a bit of asymmetry of skin with growth that may lead to a revision, but... That's a very, very, very unusual and, and fortunately not something I've seen in my own practice yet.
0: Great, thank you. So the next category we're going to talk about are hydroceles. So what can you tell us about hydroceles, and how might we manage them?
1: So hydroceles arise from a very similar process from hernias. So that it's again a failure of closure of the, the processus vaginalis. Um, and what we tend to find in hydroceles is that the size of the channel that is transmitting the stuff into the groin is rather smaller. And so what you get with a hydroseal is um, peritoneal fluid coming down the processus vaginalis around the testicle um, as opposed to bowel. And, and because hydroseals simply transmit and contain fluid, there isn't the urgency to repair them that one would see with a hernia um, because the risk of the, that fluid being there is tiny, fact, pretty much non-existent. Um, so... The majority of paediatric surgeons would advise conservative management of a hydrocele in a small child and probably start to think about offering offering repair when the child's over three, um, although there is some variability in practice between different people. And the reason for that is that a lot of these hydroceles will resolve spontaneously because this small open channel in the groin will simply close. Um, And so for that reason certainly wouldn't recommend surgery in, in babies and younger children. Um, the parents just simply need to be reassured um, that this is a, something that is very likely to get better by itself and, and if it doesn't get better by itself, it's something that could be repaired using a simple day case procedure when the child's a bit older. Um, there are a couple of oddities that sometimes cause confusion. Um, there's a thing called a hydrocele of the cord where the channel that transmits the fluid doesn't go all the way down around the scrotum, so um, around the testicle and into the scrotum. So you don't see um, a swelling in the scrotum. You see a swelling in the groin, um, and that's the first thing is clinically is, to tell, is how you tell the difference between that and an underscended testis. And clearly, the way you do that is to make is to establish the fact that the testis is a separate swelling. Um, it can be really difficult to understand the difference between an insisted hydrocele of the cord where there's a hard swelling in the groin and an incarcerated inguinal hernia and that for us can be really tough when children come as an emergency and several people have tried to reduce the swelling so it's sore and a bit red looking and whenever anyone goes near it the child cries and, and actually it can, it can be tough um, to tell and I've certainly been guilty once of taking a child to theatre and thinking I was about to um, deal with an, an incarcerated hernia and um, I was a registrar, and I got the boss in in the middle of the night to repair this incarcerated hernia, and it turned out to be an insisted hydrocele of the cord. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that clinical distinction can be quite difficult. There's there's a an analogous swelling you get in girls, which is sometimes referred to as a, a hydrocele, of the canal of Nuck, which is the same thing just in a girl. Um, and again, you can get a groin swelling as a consequence of that.
0: Okay. And how can we diagnose this?
1: So the, the classic test is to. To distinguish a, a hernia and a hydrocele is to transilluminate the swelling. Um, Hydroceles often have a slightly bluish tinge to them, um, and there's a, usually a big clue in the clinical history. So if you speak to the parents of, of a child with a hernia and you say, "Is the hernia, is the swelling there all the time, or does it come, does it come and go?" They like to say it comes and goes, and it comes and goes reasonably quickly, whereas a hydrocele classically. In a in an upright child will gradually grow over the course of the day as more fluid accumulates, and then when they lie down overnight, it goes back into the peritoneal cavity and it gets smaller again. Um, so often if you take a careful clinical history, you can tell quite well before you've got anywhere near the child. Um, the other thing with a um a hernia clearly is that if it's reducible, you can reduce it up into the groin, and it's it's above the testis, whereas a hydrocele classically will come down around it. Um, and then there's the test of translumination, where you shine a light through it, and a, a, trans, uh, a hernia should not transluminate if it contains bowel, whereas a hydrocele usually will. The only slight caveat to that is that neonatal bowel does transmit light, so it's not a reliable test in a small baby, because you can quite easily transluminate a hernia in a neonate, because the bowel thin enough that the light just passes through it. So it's, it's it's a good reliable test in older children, but it's not a terribly good reliable test in small babies.
0: So, is there anything else we can try in that situation to help
1: diagnose? I think usually it's pretty clear on the basis of a clinical history and a careful clinical examination. Um, we occasionally will get an ultrasound if we're unsure. Um, mm-hmm. An ultrasound is really good at telling the difference between a hydrocele and the cord and an incarcerated hernia, particularly. If you've got a skilled pediatric radiologist available, which I appreciate most people don't in the middle of the night in most places, um, but actually, if you're on, un- if particularly acutely, if there's doubt about the diagnosis, that's a reasonable um, call to just get on the phone to a pediatric surgical person and ask them for an opinion, um, because the distinction between an incarcerated hernia, for example, and a uh, and a of the cord is an important one, because the one doesn't need any urgent management, and the other one's a surgical emergency.
0: Okay. Thank you. So the next category we're going to talk about are undescended testes. What can you tell us about those?
1: Um, So undescended testicles are a a really common um, paediatric surgical problem. Um, The age at which um, surgical treatment is is initiated for undescended testes has changed a lot over the years um, and the trend has been towards earlier and earlier surgery to bring the testicle down, which is an operation which was, is called an orchidopexy. Um, the British Association of Paediatric Urologists are currently recommending that um, boys with an underscended testis should have surgery in the second six months of life. It probably doesn't reflect the practice of a, of a lot of paediatric surgeons in the UK. who would probably undertake an orchidopexy at the age of a year. But it's certainly the case that we see... Um, boys referred to paediatric surgical services with underscended testicles a lot later than that. Um, From from a pragmatic clinical point of view, there's two groups of boys here, I guess. One is uh, a group of boys in whom the testicle can clearly be felt, um, but isn't in the right position. And the key clinical distinction in that group is between a retractile testis and an undescended testis. A retractile testis is physiological. Um, and refers to a testis that's brought out of the scrotum by the cremasteric reflex, um, and is then in the groin. And in those boys, if you examine them carefully, nearly always you can get the testis down to the base of the scrotum where it will stay without tension. And if you can get a testis to the base of the scrotum and it can it, and it stays there without tension, the fact that it's occasionally in the groin is not clinically significant, and um, and those boys have a retractile testicle, which is normal. Um, An undescended testis is a different situation where the testis is um, arrested along its normal line of descent um, and you can get testicles arrested along the normal line of descent in the groin but also higher up because the testis develops in the abdomen during pregnancy Um, and so the commonest thing we see is a testis which you can feel in the groin but you cannot get down to the base of the scrotum without tension And, and that testis is is an underscender testicle um, and there are good reasons to to bring that testicle down into the scrotum um, one of which the, probably the best of which is that it's felt that testicular function is improved by moving that testicle down in, into the scrotum but it also reduces the risk of torsion um, and places the testicle in, in the correct position which for most people is a good thing in and of itself um, the um the other situation we see is a is a position where the testis is impalpable now clearly if you have a boy with a an impalpable testis bilaterally um that is would raise a concern about um a disorder of sex differentiation and and the particular um worry would be congenital adrenal hyperplasia where it's unilateral um the the surgical approach to that problem would be to perform a diagnostic laparoscopy to look inside the abdomen assuming the testis isn't palpable either on the day of surgery or examination under anaesthetic while the child's asleep to see what's going on and the the two common situations we find ourselves in are that the testis is undescended but intra-abdominal and in that situation occasionally it's possible to bring it down via a one-stage operation but often we end up doing a two-stage procedure, something called a Fowler-Stevens orchidopexy, where the testicular vessels are divided at the first operation, and you then leave the testis in the abdomen for six months, with the expectation that the artery to the vas will hypertrophy as a consequence of the testicular vessels being divided. Um, and at the second stage operation, you then bring the testis down into the scrotum, um, using a, a ton of peritoneum which has the vas deferens with, it, with its associated hypertrophied vessels alongside it. Um, the other situation we find ourselves in when we do the laparoscopy is that the, the inguinal ring is closed and the vasem vessels are going into the groin, um, which implies that the testis has descended but has probably undergone torsion perinatally or antenatally and has then disappeared. Um, And there are a variety of approaches to what one would do next about that. Um, My own practice is to explore the groin and excise the testicular remnant against any possibility of causing difficulty in the future Um, because there are some experimental studies that have demonstrated viable tissue within testicular remnants. Um, The other question is about what you do with the contralateral testis and some paediatric surgeons will fix it to make sure it doesn't tort. my own view on that is that the, the process of torsion that's associated with the side that has, has atrophied as a consequence, one would assume of perinatal torsion, um, the cause of that is different from the cause of torsion when it happens in older ch- children, and so I wouldn't consider that the risk to, of torsion to the contralateral testis is any higher than that of the general population. But of course it's really important to counsel the family effectively, because if that one testis were to tw- to twist and subsequently atrophy then you know the boy would be rendered an all kick um, so an impalpable testis gives you a lot of potential issues and possibilities one is that there is a testis that's in the abdomen the other is that there's a testis which has at some point disappeared during development um, and then very very occasionally Particularly in rather chubbier boys, we sometimes find a testis in the groin that is small and not easy to palpate, but actually is worth bringing down.
0: Okay, and as a paediatrician um, who might see this at Baby Check, what advice should they give parents?
1: Um, so I think the first thing is to be clear that you can feel both testes. If you can't feel testicles at all, that's not something to ignore, that is something that needs action taking about it. Um, the the advice that one would give to parents is that in in a newborn it is possible that testicles which were in the groin will come down into the scrotum during the six first six months of life, um, and f- for that reason it's impossible to make a decision about whether or not orchidopexy is required. Um, so that would be something that would come up again um, at the six week check. If the testicles remain undescended, um, then it would be from a paediatric surgical perspective, then it would be really great to see these boys at six to nine months of age so we can start planning and making decisions about how we might offer surgery. Um, the, the, the tendency, in my experience, is, tends to be that um, babies and, children and boys with underscended testes are, re- are referred rather later than that. Um, so paradoxically, it's a, it's a bit different from the situation where... Um, it with, with non-retractile foreskins, where my experience has been that we see a lot of referrals of, of boys where um, the foreskin is non-retractile, but but actually that would not be a concern at that age. We tend to see boys with undescended testes rather later in childhood than we would sometimes like to. Um, so if the testes are not in the scrotum by the age of um, six months, then we certainly would want to see that child.
0: Okay. Great, thank you. So in this podcast so far, we've covered umbilical hernias, inguinal hernias, foreskin problems, hydrocele, and undescended testicles. Before we conclude, is there anything else that you'd like to add?
1: No, I think that's been a reasonable survey of some common general surgical problems in paediatric surgery. Great.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to GOSH Pods. If you would like more information on courses and educational opportunities offered by GOSH Learning Academy, please visit the website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy or follow us on Twitter at GOSH Learn Acad.